I'm excited. I'm excited about this journey that we are about to take in the Gospels of Jesus Christ. It's something that I've never personally done before in the sense of trying to organize the four Gospels in chronological order. I'll get some of it wrong, no doubt, but it's fairly easy to put Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, the synoptic Gospels, and to then place John in the timeline of that as well. In fact, uh, we have advantages through all the Gospels to help us lay out a pretty decent timeline. Every once in a while, you might uh, switch an event or so around, which will be understandable. But I'm going to try to attempt to take us through all four Gospels. The chronological journey through the Gospels is the overall title of this series that we're about to step into. Today's message I titled, The Light and Life of Men. Not knowing how to properly title this, I added chapter one in my notes because we're going to be teaching from all four Gospels today, so it's hard to zero in on a certain passage of Scripture. And so we're just going to go chapter, in a sense, a chapter by chapter, look through the chronological order of the Gospels and just kind of get a great glimpse of Jesus Christ. And it's one of the reasons I am doing this is because of you guys. I'd asked, what would you like to hear? And I, I got several responses, but the number one response was, let's hear a gospel. And one person even wrote, it's been a while since we've heard Jesus's words from his mouth. Well, we'll have to actually wait until we get to heaven to hear that. But uh, <laughs> I understand what they were, where they were going with that statement. And over the years, I look back at my notes and I actually, in a midweek study last year, uh, from 2020 to 21, we did the Gospel of Matthew. In 2008 and 9, the Gospel of Mark. 2013 and 14, the Gospel of Luke. And John, 2018. And so I've taught through the Gospels. I've taught through them more than once. So it would be very simple for me to pick up one of the Gospels. But as I was thinking about this, this thought came to mind. What if I tried to order all four Gospels? And we go through it. As I had mentioned, the Synoptic Gospels is what Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called because they have similar themes that run throughout. And so when we come to a Gospel account that is identical in one of the other Gospel writers, I'll just pick the one that I feel is the one that the Lord would have us look at. For me, for an example... When the rich young ruler came to Jesus Christ, and we know the account of the rich young ruler that he had a lot of wealth, and ultimately God challenged him, the Lord Jesus challenged him to sell what he had, give it to the poor, pick up your cross, come and follow me. And it says that he went away and was very sad. He was not willing to do what the Lord had offered him because of his great riches. But Mark tells us in that whole account, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give us a description of this account. And it's Mark who adds, Jesus looked at him with love. And so the command that Jesus gave to this man came from love. Matthew and Luke don't tell us that that word love isn't introduced to us there. But I love it from Mark's account just because 
Jesus wasn't angry with the man. He wasn't uh, displeased with him. He loved him. And he actually was telling him what was necessary for him to gain everlasting life. For him, he had put riches at his, as his God and was unwilling to part with that. And so as we go through the Gospels in that sense, I'll be able to kind of glean through. And so we won't read every verse from every Gospel all at once. We'd never get through it. But I'll do my best for us this year and maybe a little bit into next year. We'll see how it goes. So today we're looking at a chronological journey through the Gospels, the light and life of men. I dubbed this chapter one. The four Gospels and their authors, we'll see as an introduction. The author's introductions to their Gospels, and we'll look at the genealogy of Christ. And so I want to begin by just giving us a little background on the Gospels themselves. The authors of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, get a little history regarding their own lives. And some we glean from tradition, some we get from the very Word of God. And I already mentioned that the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. It's because the word actually refers to together sites. So synoptic together sites because they see together in a common view. They have a a similar view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One author put it this way, Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover many of the same events in Jesus's life, most of them from Jesus's ministry in Galilee in much the same order. Nearly 90% of Mark's content is found in Matthew and about 50% of Mark appears in Luke. All of the parables of Christ are found in the synoptic gospels and John contains no parables. And so when we get into the um, Jesus' teaching of the parables, that will be coming from either Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And then John gives us a different view. And I think John had a different purpose for the writing of his Gospels. The Gospels are not contradictory against one another, but were written with unique objectives in mind. For Matthew, he presents Jesus the Messiah, while Mark, he reveals Jesus the suffering servant. Luke, he focuses on Jesus, the Savior, and John points to Jesus, the Son of God. And therefore, when we examine all four of the Gospels, we get a clear picture of Jesus, Savior of the world. Now, Matthew, we know from Scripture that he is Matthew, the tax collector. Very common for us to reference him with that title. His name was also Levi. And according to Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13, Mark 2, verses 13 through 17, we learn of his call into the ministry to follow Jesus, that before Jesus called him, he was there collecting taxes. And after Jesus called him, he held a feast at his house to share with all of his friends the work that Jesus was doing in his life. And He was a tax collector. He was a Jewish man who was hated by the Jews because he was collecting tax for the Roman government. And so he was considered a traitor. And so that day that Jesus called him when Matthew had a party in his house at night, well, he gathered together his friends. Well, if he's hated by all his Jewish brethren, who do you think his friends would be? It would be other tax collectors and sinners. In fact, 
That's how they viewed this party. From those who were of the Orthodox Jews, those who ultimately did not believe in Jesus, they looked down upon Jesus for even attending this party with Matthew, his fellow tax collectors, and what they deemed sinners. Now, as we know, Matthew, he was a tax collector. Tradition says he was born in Nazareth, although we cannot find that in Scripture. He wrote his gospel in Hebrew, and afterwards it was translated by James the Less into Greek, and this is all tradition. The scenes of his labor was in Parthia and Ethiopia, and in Ethiopia he would suffer martyrdom, they believe, sometime around 60 A.D., And as Christians, we can be eternally grateful for the ministry of the writer of the gospel of Matthew. John Mark, and so I'm going in order, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John Mark, we know, again, from Scripture, we get a little bit about the story of John Mark, uh, known to us as Mark, or his proper name, John Mark. He was the cousin of uh, Barnabas, and we learn in the book of Acts that after Herod put James to death, that he also had Peter arrested. And the book of Acts, in Acts 12, verse 12, it tells us that the church gathered in the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, to pray for Peter. We discover that John Mark was a very young man, early on had the church meeting in his home for prayer meetings, According to Acts 12.12, his uncle Barnabas got Paul to agree to take Mark with them on the first missionary journey. But in the book of Acts, it tells us that when the work got hard, Mark left the work and went back home. And so ultimately, that would cause a divide between Paul and Barnabas when they would attempt to go on a second missionary journey together. That missionary journey would never take place. But Paul would go off with Silas and Barnabas took Mark and he continued to train him. In fact, Paul would later write saying, get Mark for he is useful for me in ministry. And Peter had a great influence on Mark as well as in 1 Peter 5.13, it tells us he saying of Mark that he is my son and tradition teaches that Mark was a close attendant and interpreter of Peter and was given us the gospel that bears his name actually from the teachings of Peter. Now, Luke, we get him in scripture as well in the book of Acts. We learn that Luke joined the missionary work of Paul and Silas when Paul answered the Macedonian call when he had the dream that night of a man in the dream motioning, saying, come to us, come over here, the answer of that Macedonian call, Luke would write, he actually wrote himself in the book of Acts, Acts 16.10, saying, now after he had seen the vision, talking about Paul, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so right there in Acts 16.10, Luke writes himself into the account by using that pronoun we. He became part of the narrative of the book of Acts, and he would continue to be part of that narrative throughout the book of Acts. Initially, he came alongside Paul, perhaps 
because of Paul's health. For Paul himself refers to Luke as the beloved physician in Colossians 4.14. And Luke really became a valuable part of the team, either being with Paul or being sent by Paul to go to other cities. He is being directed by Paul from Acts 16 until the end of the book of Acts in Acts 28. Uh, Luke is there with Paul. Paul called him my fellow laborer in Philemon 24. And in Paul's last epistle in 2 Timothy 4.11, he declared, only Luke is with me. Only Luke is with me. So Luke was a valuable part of the second and third missionary journey. And even when Paul was in prison, Luke traveled with them. And then in the last days, Luke was there with Paul. What is unique about Luke, and he tells us this, and we'll get into this in our second point, but Luke interviewed several eyewitnesses and ministers of Christ to bring us his gospel accounts. But we also know that his true inspiration, it didn't come from man, it came from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. For the Bible tells us in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And although Luke may have interviewed many people to get a clearer picture of the ministry of Jesus Christ, it was the Holy Spirit who became his editor, who helped put the gospel together. Now, in the Gospel of John, John never identifies himself personally in his gospel. He refers to himself, though, as an eyewitness in John 1.14, the disciple whom Jesus loved in John 13.23, John 20, verse 2, John 21, verse 7, and verse 20. He also refers to himself as the other disciple in John 18.16, and in chapter 20, he refers to himself as this other disciple, chapter 20, verses 2, 3, 4, and 8. We learn from his gospel of Peter, James, and John being found together in the gospel itself. In all of the gospels, we find Peter, James, and John, so much so that they have been dubbed the inner circle of Christ because they were always near the Lord. They were there in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed on that final night before his crucifixion. They were there on the mountain of transfiguration with Christ. And John and his brother James, well, Jesus called them in, in Mark 3.17. He nicknamed them the Sons of Thunder. And perhaps this nickname came as a result of an event that took place when Jesus wanted to pass through a Samaritan village and they refused Jesus' entrance into their village. James and John came to the Lord, Luke 9, 54. Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just like Elijah did? Sometimes we look at the uh, apostles and we think, these saintly men... These saintly men were much like you and I. And they were driven with passion and they felt perhaps they could do things that God had not allowed them to do. 
they thought they could call fire down from heaven at this point. And the Lord said, no, no, let's not do that, sons of thunder. He didn't call them that here in Luke's gospel, but he did nickname them the sons of thunder. Unlike the other apostles, John did not die martyrdom. According to the second century theologian, Tertullian, he relates that they plunged John into a cauldron of boiling oil, and when he did not die, they banished him to the Isle of Patmos for a season. And there, as we've just studied the book of Revelation, is where John received the revelation of Jesus Christ. We went through that study last year here on Sunday mornings. But also tradition states that he was released for a season, went to Ephesus where he finished his days as the pastor of the church over Ephesus, and it's believed there from Ephesus that John wrote his gospel to us. John himself gives an explanation of his gospel in John 20, verses 30 and 31. And this explanation fits all the gospel writers. John wrote, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote their Gospels in order that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we may have life in his name. It is my prayer that you have believed in Jesus and that you have obtained this life that can only come through the name of Jesus Christ, faith in his name, his work upon the cross. So that's somewhat an introduction to the gospel writers, but how about getting an introduction from the gospel writers themselves connected with their own gospels, except for Matthew. He gives no introduction in his gospel. He begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which we'll look at in our next point. But Mark has a very short introduction where he says, Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark lets us know that this is the gospel. The gospel itself can mean good news or glad tidings or a good message. And when related to Jesus Christ, although it speaks about his life, his teachings, his death, burial, and resurrection, his miracles, the gospel of Jesus Christ pointing to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ through faith in his name. It is the good news. It's glad tidings of how we might be saved through the work of Jesus upon the cross. Mark liked to use that word gospel. He used it six times in his gospel, three times in chapter 1. Where in Mark 1 1, as we've just read, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in verse 14, he records that Jesus preached the gospel. In verse 15, he said that Jesus petitioned his hearers to repent and believe in the gospel. In Mark 13 10, Jesus explained there that the gospel must first be preached to all nations 
before the coming, second coming of Jesus Christ himself. And then after the woman who was anointed, who anointed Jesus at Bethany with the expensive oil, and when the others who were in that room, the disciples themselves complaining that she could have sold the oil, given it to the poor, the proceeds from the oil, given it to the poor, and they felt it was a waste to take such an expensive oil and to break the flask and to anoint Jesus with that oil. Jesus responded in Mark 14, 1, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And finally, Jesus commissions us in Mark 16, 15, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. So this word gospel appearing six times in the gospel account of the book of Mark, a word that can mean the good news or glad tidings or a good message, although it relates to Jesus' life, his teaching, his miracles, it especially relates to his death, burial, and resurrection. And I say especially relates because 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, Paul writes to us, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you that the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And here it is, the gospel. He said, I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And again, it's my prayer that you have believed and received the gospel of Jesus Christ by which we are able to stand and are saved. Are we holding fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now Luke gives us an introduction. He has a little more to say than Mark in his introduction. In fact, he explains how his gospel came about. I already gave you a hint of it. I want to go to it in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The Word of God tells us, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which are most surely believed among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, O most excellent Theophilus that you may know the certainty of those things which you were instructed. So Luke's introduction, we find that his gospel initially was written to a man named Theophilus. And he, he wrote these words that this man would have a greater understanding of the things that he'd already been instructed in. And that's how it can be for us as well. We may be very familiar with the Gospels, as I've already shared with you. I've taught through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John more than once. And so I am familiar with them. And it used to be as a young pastor, I'm not a young pastor anymore, but it used to be when I was younger, 
You think it would seem strange to reteach things that you have taught in times past, but I've also come to the opinion that it is important for us as the church to be reminded of the things that we have already learned. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes we neglect to remember, as it was for Theophilus, that he would know certain the things that he had already been instructed in, and now he is given this orderly account. As Mark, as Luke, let's get the right gospel writer here, as Luke interviewed many eyewitnesses and ministers of Christ, he may have even talked, it's believed that he may have even interviewed Mary to get her personal account of the birth of Jesus Christ as found in the gospel of Luke. Luke wrote to Theophilus. Theo means God, uh, phileo, uh, brotherly love. And so Theophilus, lover of God, as we put these two Greek words together. He also called him most excellent. And this is a title of importance. Here in the book of Luke, he wrote to most excellent Theophilus. In the book of Acts, he would simply say, a dear Theophilus, and so he dropped the most excellent there. So maybe their relationship grew in a sense, but we do know that Felix and Festus, governors of the providence of Judea that were written about in the book of Acts, they also had this same title in addressing them, most excellent. Paul addressed Festus this way, saying most excellent Festus. And so it was a title of importance. Tradition uh, teaches that Theophilus may have been a Roman officer or a ruler of the city of Antioch. Some believe that Luke may have been his personal physician. Back then it was the wealthy, the rich, who were able to afford to have doctors. And often they would have slaves who became doctors and they were owned by them. And so some teach by tradition that Luke was his personal physician, that it was Theophilus that allowed Luke to be with Paul to go forth on the missionary journey that he could first serve Paul and help him with his uh, failing health. Now, John, in his prologue, what a beautiful prologue we have in the uh, Gospel of John. I'm only going to read verses 1 through 5. I had a hard time cutting this one off. Part of me wanted to go all the way to the verse 14. But we begin to talk about the ministry of John the Baptist, and I'm going to hold that off until a few weeks from now. But here in the Gospel of John, we find, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehended. So John, as he begins his gospel, he takes us back to the beginning, the beginning of creation or even before creation itself. John takes us back dealing with Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word. And this word for beginning here in the Greek, it doesn't refer to that is, which is the first one made, as if Jesus being the first one made, he is the prototype. 
We learn that in a different passage of Scripture. But it's a word that literally means by which everything exists. In the beginning was the word, the word by which everything exists. That word is the Greek word logos. And it can mean a word, it can mean a message or to speak. But here it refers to the only begotten of the Father. Now, it's hard for me to not mention here in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. It's hard for me not to mention that the Jehovah's Witness have a, a different translation of this passage. They take a different view because they say that the proper understanding of John 1, 1 would read, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was a God. They state that Jesus Christ was a God and they uh, say this because in the Greek, in the Koine Greek in which it was originally written, the last God, the Theos, the last God does not have a definite article. I have an argument of why it doesn't need a definite article there. But their assumption is false that Jesus is not God. They actually say that he's Michael, the archangel who became a man, the New World Translation then translates this incorrectly, saying that he is a God. First of all, it's important to understand, but by saying that Jesus is a God, it suggests that there is another God beside God Almighty, of which Scripture denounces that there is only one God. There may be many false gods that people worship in the world, but there's only one God. But if understood correctly, it helps us really to understand the doctrine of the triunity of the Godhead. The word is eternal. Remember, through him all things exist. The word is in relationship with God the Father. The word is God. The word was with God in the beginning, and all things were made through him. In Hebrews 1, 8, and also verse 10, the word of God tells us, God speaking, he says, but to his son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Here's God the Father speaking to God the Son, saying, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 better explains to us, for by him, speaking of Jesus Christ, by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things consist. And so it's so important for us to have this understanding that Jesus Christ is the word. In fact, John 1.14, although we're technically not that far yet in John's gospel, John 1.14 tells us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So John, in his gospel, in case his readers misunderstood who he was speaking about when he described God as the word. 
in John 1.14, he said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's talking about Jesus. Regarding Jesus being the light and light of men, there in verse 4, God breathed into man in Genesis 2.7. It tells us God breathed the breath of life and man became a living being. Referring to the breath of life that not only resulted in physical life, but also spiritual life. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they separated themselves from God. Their eyes were opened. They were made aware of their nakedness, as we talked about during communion this morning. And they experienced spiritual death at that moment. But in God's grace, he provided clothing to make a covering for their shame. For Adam and Eve, that covering most likely was a lamb. They were given lamb skins instead of uh, fig leaves that they had sewn together. For the Bible tells us in Genesis 3.21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. But today, that clothing that we need, that covering that we need, comes through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John 5.26, the word tells us, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And in Revelation 13.8, it tells us that Jesus Christ is the Lamb who is slain from the foundation of the world. And in verse 5, John tells us that the light shining in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not comprehend it. And this is how it is in the world today. And it's getting, it seems to be getting worse, especially here in the United States, a country that was founded upon the Judeo-Christian values that now are being stripped away in our nation itself. And uh, really thinking that humanity here in the United States, especially, and then I believe we're coming to understand over the last couple of years that there is a worldwide agenda going on as well because many of the same crazy things that are happening here in the United States are happening in other nations or other cities throughout the world, very similar, as if someone is directing the whole thing. And we know that the Bible teaches about a one world government coming. And we see that over the last couple of years, how that could be formed, that scripture really coming alive to us. But there in verse five, John wrote, and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. And to this day, the darkness still does not comprehend the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the light. His light shines in this world, but the world cannot comprehend it. Think about it today as you leave the church today. It's sunny out right now, I can tell. And we have this fresh blanket of snow on the ground, which makes things kind of bright white. I always like the first snow, not shoveling it. But just looking at it, if you could just look at it and not have to shovel, that would be a whole different story. But the purity that you have, even if you neglected to rake your leaves this fall, right now you can't tell 
that there's something waiting for you in the spring because for us here in northern Illinois, it's covered by this gleaming white snow. But as we leave the church today, as we walk out, if we don't put our sunglasses on, and I won't, Lily will, um, we'll have that glare of the brightness of the sun. Now think if we came out of a darkened room, we're in the church, it's not totally dark in the church itself, but if we came from a, a darkened room into the brightness of the sun, even outside right now today, how it would repel us in the sense that we'd want to cover our eyes. The world itself, that's what's happening when they see the light of Jesus Christ. They want to cover their eyes. And when they see people of Christ walking and sharing the light of Jesus, it's why at times people dislike us perhaps because of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. They cannot comprehend it because they have been darkened by the things of the world. They're accustomed to the dark, and you know how that is as well. All you have to do is um, go into a dark room, and I learned this from a friend many years ago. I just never forgot it. You get in a dark room, just close your eyes for a little while, let your eyes adjust to the darkness and then open them and you'll see clearer. I had this in a message when I went through the Gospel of John, just recalling it um, from the days of the pirates who roamed the seven seas, that many of the pirates who wore the patch over their eye didn't wear the patch because their eye had been poked out by a sword. They wore the patch over their eye that they could quickly go from above deck to below deck and all they had to do is switch the patch. They had one eye ready for darkness, one eye ready for the light, depending on where they happened to be fighting at the time. They didn't want to wait to, just wait a minute, before we have this sword fight, let me adjust. You know, it would be too late, right? So a quick flip of the patch, and they're ready to go and to battle on. The world is accustomed to the darkness, and the Bible tells us in Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And today, instead of praising Jesus for the glories of his creation, humanity looks to the heaven as the life source. They believe in things like evolution, like the Big Bang Theory. Instead of believing that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And Paul writes to us in Romans 1.22, professing to be wise, they became fools. The Word was with God as the Father created all things through his son, Jesus Christ, there in the beginning. Jesus is also the life and light of humanity to this day. And it's only through faith in his name that we can find true life. Now, I thought about this a few days ago as I was going over this message, trying to get things done early this week because of uh, being a holiday weekend. And there's the word of Jesus himself, but it comes from Deuteronomy, where in Matthew 18, 16, Jesus, just reading from Deuteronomy, Jesus said, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. 
And the Lord Jesus Christ gave us four gospels. He gave us four witnesses that we would know that our faith in Christ might be established. I'm going to go ahead and just pick up in our last point, reading through the genealogies of Jesus Christ. There's only two for us. And uh, it begins in the book of Matthew. And we'll read from verses 1 through 17. In verse 1, Matthew writes, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So with Jesus being of the lineage of David, Matthew shows that Jesus is the legal heir to the throne of Israel. But also, Jesus being the son of Abraham, Matthew demonstrates that Jesus, as the Messiah, he came from the right nation. So there at the beginning of his gospel, Matthew connects Jesus Christ in his genealogy as the son of David and the son of Abraham. In fact, he couldn't properly be the true son of David unless he had come through Abraham because Abraham, the father of Israel, David came through the lineage of Abraham himself. But just in order that we should know that we're talking about the right David. This is the David, the great king of Israel, that Jesus being a descendant of. We also find something unique, and Matthew tells us this himself in verse 17. Before I read the genealogies, in verse 17, he says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations from David until captivity in Babylon are 14 generations and from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations so he divides his genealogy in three groups of 14 names and we begin with that first group from Abraham to David and the word of God tells us and Abraham begot Isaac and Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers and Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. And Ram begot Aminadab and Aminadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Ruth. Boaz begot Obed by, by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. Jesse begot David, the king, David. And we'll get into that second genealogy uh, from there, when we get in the second half of that verse, where now it takes us from David to Babylon. As we continue reading, David the king begot Solomon, and by her who had been the wife of Uriah, Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, Abijah begot Asa, Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Jeram, Jeram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Asa, Asa, Ahaz, I should say, Ahaz begot Hezekiah, Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, Ammon begot Josiah, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. And for the final set of 14 verses 12 through 16, and after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Sheotiel, Sheotiel begot Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel begot Abiud, Abiud begot Eliakim, Eliakim begot Azor, Azor begot Zadok, 
Zadok begot Akim, Akim begot Eliud, Eliud begot Eliezer, Eliezer begot Methan, Methan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. And so again, verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations from David until captivity in Babylon are 14 generations from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. So in this genealogy, it was not customary for women to be named in the genealogies, but we find in the genealogy of Jesus Christ that four are mentioned. Three are named, one uh, is described as the wife of Uriah, and so we know the four as Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And each of these four women had questionable backgrounds, but it's really a great reminder to us that no matter our past, redemption can be found through Christ Jesus our Lord. We also have the mention of Josiah's son, Jeconiah. And this is significant because for Jeconiah, there was no redemption. Jeconiah was the king of Judah when they went into the Babylonian captivity. He so displeased the Lord that Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 22 verse 30, he wrote these words, thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, as a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David, ruling any more in Judah. So when Judah went into captivity, their king, Jeconiah, God cut off the descendants of Jeconiah that no man would rule on the throne nor any would prosper any longer. In Judah. And it was through Jeconiah that there was the legal right to the throne, but God had cut off this line. But Jesus was not actually of the bloodline of Joseph. And that's why he is called here the husband of Mary and not the father of Jesus, as we know. Now, here is my greatest challenge in this whole thing today reading the genealogy that comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. Largely because these names are not familiar to us, and they're Bible names, which makes them that much tougher. But I'm going to stumble my way through as best I can. And so we're reading from Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. Now Jesus himself began his ministry about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathetat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jaana, the son of Joseph, the son of Mathathiah, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsie, the son of Nagai, the son of Math the son of Mattathiah, the son of Simei, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of Johannes, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheotiel, the son of Neri, the son of Milchai, 
the son of Adai, the son of Kassam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Jose, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Menan, the son of Mathatha, something like that, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon. I, I just can't say Salmon. It just seems weird to call him Salmon, but it's pronounced that way as well. The son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Kainan or Canaan, the son of Arifax, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Zeth, the son of Adam, the son of God. First of all, in his genealogy, Luke tells us that Jesus began his ministry about the age of 30. This is important. It's significant because in the Old Testament, we find that many ministries began at the age of 30. Joseph became Israel's savior in Genesis 41, verse 46, at the age of 30. The Levites began their priestly ministry According to Numbers 4, verses 2 and 3, at the age of 30, David became king over Israel at the age of 30, according to 2 Samuel 5, 4, and Ezekiel, the prophet of Israel, became prophet at the age of 30, according to Ezekiel 1, 1. But it is only Jesus Christ who fills all these roles as Savior, priest, king, and prophet. Now, in this genealogy, most of them unfamiliar to us because the genealogy itself, following the bloodline of Mary here, we're not familiar with these names. But he tells us from the beginning, as was supposed the father of Jesus, Joseph, he wasn't actually the father. And so Matthew and Mark both explained to us that Jesus was not the son of Joseph, but it was supposed to be. People thought he was. Also, Heli was Joseph's father-in-law, the father of Mary, who gave us the true bloodline of David, but not through Solomon, but through his son Nathan, as we follow the genealogy through. And there's also the difference where Matthew gives an account that ends with Abraham here, Luke goes all the way back to God. He takes it all the way back to God. And, and that's so significant that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. God promised to build David a house, not of wood and stone, but a dynasty that would last forever through the coming Messiah. That promise is found. It's the Davidic covenant that was given to David in 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16, where the Word of God tells us, also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house 
when your days are fulfilled and you find rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits an iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and the blows of the son of men, but my mercy shall not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you and your house, here it is, Second Samuel seven sixteen. your house, your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And that establishment came in the fulfillment of Jesus Christ coming as the son of David, son of Abraham, son of God. Also, we find that Jesus came from the lineage of Judah, and there Jacob prophesied concerning his son Judah in Genesis 49.10 that the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, until Shiloh comes, that Jesus Christ's fulfillment, the scepter, speaking about his right to the throne of David, Shiloh himself, a word that means tranquility or peace, the rest giver. Jesus Christ becomes that rest giver for us. While Matthew, as I said, traced his genealogy back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, Luke traced it all the way back to God himself the father of all creation, showing us that Jesus is both savior of the Jews and the Gentiles. In other words, Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. And the Bible tells us in Romans 10, 13, whoever calls upon the name of Jesus Christ shall be saved. So the son of God became the son of man in order that he could save us from our sins. As Dave comes to prepare to lead a last song for us. I want to uh, kind of close this out here today. We've looked at the authors of the four Gospels, and we've learned that it's through faith in Jesus Christ that we can have life in his name. That the authors themselves gave their own introduction to their Gospels, all but Matthew, as Matthew's Gospel began with a genealogy. But from the four Gospels, Jesus said, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And the Lord has given us four gospels that our faith in Jesus Christ might be established. And in the genealogy of Jesus Christ from Matthew and Luke's gospels, we learn that Jesus Christ, the son of God, became the son of man that we might be saved from our sins. It is my prayer that you know Jesus as your savior. If you're listening on the radio today, perhaps at a later time, maybe you're watching through uh, social media this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior or you've drifted away, there's no better way to start the new year than just rededicating your heart to the Lord this day. I would challenge you to do so, to either accept him as your Savior or rededicate your heart to him this day. I just want to remind you, for those who are here at the church, I'll be down front if anybody has a prayer need. There are also prayer benches where you can come and pray to the Lord on your own. Just come and kneel down up front. Let's go ahead and stand. And Father, we pray that you'd be with us now as we close out in a song. 
Lord, thank you for your Gospels. And help us, Lord, to learn much as we take this journey through the Gospels this year. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.